Hello and welcome to the Talk Cardboard podcast, a subsidiary of No Pun Included and the new name for the No Pun Included podcast. I'm Elaine and here with me is my favourite board gamer, Efka. Wow, your favourite board gamer? Yeah, you are. How, how did that happen? I don't know. I married you, so, you know. Eventually, over time, yeah. <laughs> over time, you became my favourite board gamer. Great. Um... I like the challenge that this isn't just a new name for the No Pun Included podcast. This is this is a new No Pun this Included is, this podcast. This may be the new and and or improved No Pun Included. We'll see podcast. about the improved. We've we hope been, so. We've been on hiatus for quite some time, but and now we are back, emerging in this new form, like a phoenix or a cardboard phoenix. There, I made it more board gamey, or some kind of butterfly. Mariposa. That's a board game. It, I, no, right? Yeah, right? V- very good, Elaine. Very good. In. Uh, and today on this podcast, we will be talking about some board games. We will be talking about Evergreen, Artisans of Splendid Vale, Scout and Ostia, but not necessarily in that order. But the thing that makes this podcast better than the last podcast is because there will be other things than just talking about the board games that we've played. This week, we will be talking about... My most anticipated games for 2023. Ooh. And also, exciting. we have some audience correspondence. We'll get to that later. But there's some audience correspondence. And I'd like to add, we will be adding new features as we go along. So this is just but a little taster of what the Talk Cardboard podcast is going to be as we grow and move forward. Butter little taster. Like a tasting of butters. Butterfly little taster. Ooh. Oh, there nice. you go. Nice. I have got my fizzy Ribena and I'm ready to talk about some board games. Are you, Efka? No, I had a roast beef joint and I'm feeling quite sluggish and tired and <laughs> oh. I quite like to go for a nap. But oh. we have to do this. There so. is no time for a nap. Okay, let's because let's. We must talk about some game. Let's let's talk about a board game. Uh, what's first on our docket? Let's talk about Scout. Okay, it's a game that we have finally played. I've been wanting to play it for so long, and we finally managed to play it because we didn't think it would be good at two, even though you can play it at two. But we thought it would be better with more, and we finally managed to get someone round our house with the promise of pizza, feeding them pizza. And then we managed to play this game. It was good. I enjoyed it. Don't we have some audience correspondence about Scout? We do indeed. Kazak from our Discord says, This fantastic trick-taking game I've really been enjoying and has gone over well with multiple game groups. But one thing I've not heard anyone mention, although I don't listen to all podcast channels out there, little um, caveat there, is that Scout is trick-taking with dominoes. Ooh. So I see the dominoes comparison, definitely, because there's this element of Scout where uh, someone, some, the contents of the table always change, right? And you have to respond with what's available in your hand in terms of number matching, but not exactly like in dominoes, because in dominoes you just want to match, oh, there's a six, so I need to play a six so that I can put it onto the table, right? And then that'll right. extend the whole area of dominoes but i would like to pick up on one thing and this is a very pedantic thing but um 
trick taking, which is a genre of card games, uh, which that people... we have discussed before. Yes, um, we've discussed with games in... like the Crew mm-hmm. in our video of the Crew, and uh, the the general brief of it is is that it's a genre of card games that is uh, very old and mm. has quite a few famous games in it, like Durak. Durak, that would be the one from the Soviet Union, yes. Uh, there's also Bridge, the one that everyone is familiar with. And also Euchre, I know a lot of Canadians play Euchre. Mm-hmm. So it's this genre of games that's been around for a very long time. But there's also been a lot of reinvigorated enthusiasm about mm. trick-taking games. There's a lot of new trick-taking games being designed. Uh, Scout, however is not a trick-taking game, even though it seems like a trick-taking game. Uh, it is actually a climbing game. Mm. Uh, which Can you it, explain the difference? Oh, but then I have to explain trick-taking, which is already complicated. Let, okay, let's assume that people know or are familiar with a little bit trick-taking. Okay, so the idea of climbing games is that uh, they're not ne- you're not necessarily playing tricks. You are trying to extend a sequence of numbers. Uh, and that might be in the most basic example. Let's say uh, someone put a five on the table. You can no longer put a five. You have to put a six, mm-hmm. right? Then the next person has to put a seven. Then the next person has to put an eight. And that is the definition of a climbing game. And in, in a very basic climbing game, let's say someone plays a five, then someone plays a six, someone plays a seven, and the next person can't play an eight or a higher card. So they might have to take like the whole pile of cards to their own hand. So that would be a climbing game. Whereas a trick-taking game, it's like, uh, you know, you play a card towards a trick and then someone wins the trick and then they get to take it. That's bad or that's good, maybe. Uh, So there's some similarities and some overlap between these things, but they're not quite the same thing. Right, and sometimes with a trick-taking game or a climbing game, you want to take the tricks or the cards from the table or sometimes you don't mm-hmm. because it depends on the type of game as to whether it's a good thing to have cards in your hand or to have tricks that you have collected or whether it's a bad thing and you don't want those because they're negative points at the end of the game. So Scout is uh, published by Oink Games, uh, designed by Kei Kajino, and it's a 2019 release. And it has recently picked up the Spiel des Jahres nomination, which I think put it on a lot of people's radars. Including ours. Yeah, definitely. And we finally got a chance to try it, which I'm very happy about, because Scout is one of those card games that feels incredibly easy to understand Mm. and incredibly easy to engage with. But at the same time, it offers this decision space where you can be clever if that is what you're trying to get out of the game. You don't have to be. You can play it as lackadaisically as you want to, which I think is a very rare breed of game. We will come back to that in just a second. Please continue. <laughs> Aha, foreshadowing. Uh, and I, I, I think I enjoy it just for that alone, you know? And I would recommend it to anyone who likes light card games just mm-hmm. for that alone, because it is very easy to... Uh, teach to your family or teach to your friends who are not necessarily into board games or card games but it will provide those fun moments because each time it's your turn there is always something that you can do in the sense that like well actually (laughs) the opposite sometimes you can't do anything but it's such an obvious and evident moment Mm. where you're like ah 
I've been stuffed because this or this happened. But like what is happening is obvious, right? These sort of the strategic and tactical moments that play out, right? They're very much on the table, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> literally putting your cards on the table yeah right yeah um and so uh, very briefly just to explain how scout works right so at the start of the game you'll deal out all the cards to all the players the cards have numbers like one two three four five six seven uh eight uh and then more numbers with more players potentially um and then you have this hand huge hand of cards you want to get rid of as many of them as possible right but the problem is that you cannot reorder them you can do one thing because the cards are two-faced and depending on how you orient them so you can you know flip them 180 and they'll have a different number right uh but again that's the only reordering you can do you can flip your entire hand upside down and it'll have different numbers and then you have to pick and how you play Scout is that there is a sort of element of trick-taking because someone can play a sequence of cards that can be one card, two cards, three cards, and the only criteria for the sequence is that they have uh, either a run of numbers, so like one, two, three, four, or uh, the same number, so let's say two, two, two. Mm -hmm. But you can only play these cards if they are adjacent already in your hand. Mm -hmm. So you cannot, like... Oh, I'll can't pick and choose. Yeah, you can't yeah. pick and choose from one end or another, right? And and, and that really is the trick of this game, right? Uh, because you want to clear out your hand, and the puzzle you're presented with immediately is like, oh, okay, well, if I play this now, maybe these two cards will join up that I couldn't play before, but like later I might be able to do it. But then often your hubris gets the best of you because you'll play like, oh, I'll play these two twos, right? And then all of a sudden someone plays free freeze and you're like, I can't beat free freeze, mm -hmm. so I'm now stuffed. Thankfully, there's this beautiful moment in Scout where you don't necessarily have to play cards. You want to because if you play cards, you get to take the previous cards that have already been played and they count towards your points yes. at the end of the round, right? Uh, but if you can't play cards, you can always scout, uh, which means taking one of the cards that are on the table with some extra rolls uh, and adding them to your hand wherever you want, suddenly enabling creating these runs that didn't exist right, you in your hand wherever before. you like yes in your hand so that that's the clever part of it but you can't over rely on scouting because not only are you not clearing out your hand but you're also sort of endangering yourself of creating a situation where the round ends early and you're also giving points to the other players yes uh anytime you scout you do give a point to the person that presented the conundrum of can you play towards this i don't want to say trick because again i made a whole point about this not being a trick-taking game but you can see how Call closely the acrobats or clowns because that's the that's the setting of the game oh yeah because we're in a circus <laughs> right? we're scouting for acrobats so um that scout in a nutshell i had a pretty good time with it uh like i said i felt it was clever uh, i felt like there were interesting moments you can engineer we can sort of try and gauge how the round is going to flow and you do need to play a few rounds of it until you pick up that flow because the puzzle feels fresh and new even uh, i'm not going to call myself a trick-taking aficionado but i've played some trick-taking games and 
a trick-taking game is the first game I have ever played in my life. Is that true? Yeah, Durak is the wow. first game 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 that I've gamed. I think mine was Rummy. That's well, not a trick-taking game. But it's a card game. So It is know. a card game, yeah. 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 So I, I was, uh, as someone who's familiar with the difference of climbing games and trick-taking mm. games, mm. I was taken aback a little bit by the flow of it and how it flows. And it, mm. it really did take me a few rounds to sort of engineer a beneficial situation. Funny I should say that, because actually the very first round of Scout that I played was the best round that I've had, <laughs> where I just cleaned up with points and then everyone else caught up to me. It's and, funny uh, you should say that also, because mm -hmm. you mentioned playing lack lackadaisically. Right? Yes. And I, I was the one who read the rules for this and I was the one that taught this to you and, and our friend that came around for pizza. And I still didn't understand how to win the tricks. Uh, and I I made myself like a little... You had a little uh, notepad, sheet. yeah. I did. Yeah. But, but like, if you do this, this will beat it. This will beat it. This won't beat it. Yeah. And if you do this, this will beat it. Like this, right? You were playing it like a computer, that. right? You had a script. I was literally following that. And I didn't win. I, didn't, I don't mm. think I won any of the rounds. I don't think of the three I think rounds. you did good in one round. Maybe. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. But I, I, but I didn't... I wouldn't recommend this, stra <laughs> this strategy. <laughs> there was something about but Scout that really tickled your brain, wasn't there? I really there? enjoyed this game. Yeah. And I think uh, with... I know it's not a trick-taking game, but with this kind of trick-taking, uh, climbing type mm -hmm. game, it does give me some kind of nostalgia, I suppose. Mm -hmm. no, not nostalgia in a way that I, I'm looking through rose-coloured glasses, but in a way that I'm, I'm familiar with this. I know what this is. I know what is going on here. And I, and what I really liked about Scout and what I liked about the crew is that it does something different with a deck of cards, right? Because with the crew, like you're playing cooperatively and you're solving different puzzles in different ways. And with Scout, I really liked how there was this added issue of if you take something, if you Scout, if you take mm. a card from the table, you're giving someone else points. So how can I prevent that? And And... What seemed to happen is that someone each round just won without anyone expecting them to win mm. because <laughs> they had a hand of cards and then suddenly they didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think it, this kind of game suffers, I guess, is, is maybe not the right word, but suffers from the same thing as any kind of card game where if you're dealt a good hand of cards then you might take it away if mm. you are dealt a hand of cards that has a run of two three four five six yeah how is anyone going to beat that right, right? yeah uh, yeah but sometimes you can do clever things and you go i've got it I, I know how to do this i think that's a general feature of this genre this trifecta of right. card games right uh that includes trick-taking shedding and climbing uh, if you're interested in what shedding games are, mm. uh, they can overlap with climbing games and and also uh, trick-taking games. This is a shedding game because you're trying to shed your hand. So that's, that's one of the features of a shedding game. Uh, I think you'll be in for a treat. There's just so many new games coming out in this genre. Certainly some that we're going to be looking in future episodes of this podcast. Uh, games like Cat in the Box, Ghosts of Christmas, Bridge City Poker. Uh, just a lot of interesting designs out there that we will be taking a look at in the future. Another comment that we have about Scout from 
I'm going to say Rota. I hope mm. that's correct. If it's not, please let me know. Is great little card game. Theme is basically non-existent, but that means it's great for my family where theme is completely ignored to the point that using theme to explain games confuses them. Also works great on all player counts. And then they've put, with the caveat for two players, you hold a lot of cards in your hand, but they've crossed that out. So I don't know. Uh played wrong the one time forgetting that two player rules exist and works well with all the player types I've played it with. From Azul is stretching it light to Caverna is a medium game heavy. I've been very interested in that because I was in the, the impression that Scout doesn't work very well as a two player game. We played it as a free player game. Yes. And even then it didn't feel like the ideal player count. I wanted it to be... Uh, a four to five player affair, you know, because uh, there is that element of like, if somebody uh, scouts uh, and then another person scouts, uh, that means that the round ends because yes. because if you played something and everyone else scouts and it goes back to you, the round immediately ends and then you have to count up whoever has uh, w- however many cards you have left in your hand with the person who triggered the game and not counting the cards in their hand. It sounds a little confusing. <laughs> it becomes evident in play. Uh, so I wanted that gap to be a little bit wider and a little bit tenser. And I think that was what was missing for me. Uh, but if someone out there thinks that Scout is a good two-player game, I am now eager to try it too. Yeah, and I agree with their point that you could play it with most people. I, I think I like the idea of kind of pub games that, that you could pull out in a pub and and play it. It doesn't require a lot of setup time. It has elements of it that people are already familiar with, especially if they've played games like Durak or, or whatever in their youth. Uh, they will know immediately what is expected of them from this game. This is from Chris S. They say, when described to me, it sounded like there would be quite a lot of hand management tactics involved, but in my admittedly only one playthrough of it, it was much more dependent on your initial card ordering than any tactical decisions you could make to remove and add cards in your hand. I would like to play again though, it was certainly a good time. Well, that's a feature of the genre. That's all I have to say about that. It's just, it's just trick-taking games, shedding games, climbing games. They all right, have that. That's kind of what we said before. Yeah. Like if you if you have a hand immediately that has a really good run in it or really good, you have a really yeah. good hand, then you're going to take that round away probably. I hate to say it, but that's trick-taking games and climbing and shedding games. Interestingly, another comment comes from Jeep about Scout being played at two. They say, secretly best with two but apparently only if you play it with the wrong rules. <laughs> See okay. below. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> and then they go on to explain their two-player experience. So I don't know how it plays with two. We have not played it at two. Well, I would have to hunt down these wrong rules now to even know <laughs> what they mean. That was Scout. We have still to come three more games we are talking about. Artisans of Splendent Vale, Ostia and Evergreen. We also have the very anticipated games that EFCA is anticipating in 2023. Let's talk about Evergreen. I'm really excited to talk about this. Evergreen really blew me away. Uh, When we were sent a copy of Evergreen by uh, Horrible Guild, the publisher of the game, uh, I didn't even know that it was the sequel to Photosynthesis. In fact, uh, I didn't even know that Yalmar... 
I, I'm probably butchering their name, uh, was the designer of photosynthesis originally because mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the co-designers of The King's Dilemma and Railroad Inc., some of my favorite games. Uh, and I, because it was published by Blue Orange Games rather than the uh, traditional publisher of this designer uh, who is Horrible Guild. Mm -hmm. And I believe they're one of the people running Horrible Guild. Oh. So, you know... Um, somehow it ended up with Blue Orange. I remember playing for the synthesis very vividly because it was at a convention. It was with some other board game media people and we played it and uh, one of them turned to me and said, so what did you think? And I said, that was a lot of work for not a lot of return. <laughs> That's like, what you want in a game, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right? Like, So for the synthesis was a game about Growing trees and trees throw shade, uh, and that shade is bad for the other trees. So it was like passive aggressive trees, oh. and it was like this sort of tree combat, <laughs> effectively tree area control. Like because you could stop other players from gaining points because your tree is taller than theirs, and it then throws shades on throws shade on theirs, and their tree then can't gather. Victory Enough points. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that was mind-numbingly arduous and but not just a like lot being of fun. A real tree, I imagine. Yeah. Like if you're planted in a place that you just can't grow well. Yeah, trees are very aggressive towards each right? other. People think nature is peaceful. It's not. But you know they have a network underground, like a root network, yeah. where they communicate with yeah. each other. Trees. Yeah, I know. Isn't it's that fascinating. It's incredible. I think. Um, but. What's more incredible is the sequel Evergreen, which somehow takes that concept of photosynthesis and makes it, I want to say, breezy uh, and and fun and vibrant. Uh, you're still doing the same thing. You're still growing free trees. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I said freeze. <laughs> uh, you're growing, growing trees and they throw shade on each other. But... Mm -hmm. Instead of having this big board where you're like all duking it out for light, everyone has their individual player board, right? Uh, and now the conflict happens in the card drafting where there's uh, basically a pool of cards and you each pick one uh, in turn order and, uh, and then whoever, whichever card is left, that goes towards scoring uh, certain types of regions where mm -hmm. you build trees on. So... Uh, your player board is this sort of um, abstract drawing of a planet with different regions. There's an icy tundra, a desert, like uh, a field, a forest, right? Rocky mountains, <laughs> etc. And some of these terrains will score you points. Some of them won't. But which ones will score will depend on the cards that are left over that sort of fall into this scoring area. So uh, that's already one, like, dynamic element. The other dynamic element is that uh, what you can do on a turn depends entirely on which card you pick. So cards mm -hmm. will have two features. They'll have a biome that they'll display, uh, and that will be the biome that you will be able to perform actions in. And that action can be whatever you want out of the available four. So there's, like... Uh, put some sprouts down. Grow the sprouts into trees. Not not Brussels sprouts. No, like tree, tree sprouts. sprouts. Yeah, grow those trees into bigger trees, and so on and on and on. Right, uh, 
And there's also an action, like a, it's called a power that's displayed on that card, which can be performed anywhere, but you're tied to what that power is. Mm -hmm. And again, it's the same things. Put some sprouts down, grow some trees, score some points, make some bushes, make some lakes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they all have like different rules associated with them. Uh, but, but the beauty of that one is that you can do it anywhere on the board. So while, when you're drafting that card, it has two elements and you get to do both of them. But one has one restriction in terms of where you can do it. And the other one has a different restriction in terms of what you can do, mm -hmm. right? So there's always something clever to engineer, something fun to do. And uh, there's this element of, this really beautiful about Evergreen is that um, as the game progresses, there's this whole system of gathering points based on how the sun is shining. So at the start of the game, the sun might shine from top to bottom, mm -hmm. then it moves clockwise and it'll shine from right to left, then it moves clockwise, it'll shine from bottom to up, right? And your configuration of trees will have benefits in one round and detriments in the other, because again, they throw shade and right. based on where they are, how tall they are, you know, they will score you different variables of points. So you're always feeling like, ah, oh, I was so clever. I made this really well where I made these like specific gaps. Uh, and so there's like shade falls onto nothing and all the trees gather points and that's and great. And then the sun moves. Right, yeah. And you're suddenly like, oh no, oh no. Everything is in shade now. I am eating my own hat, <laughs> right? Uh, so Because there are no trees to provide you with food. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, and it, once again, it's one of those games that is simple to execute because it's like, hey, you take a card and then you can do the things that it says on that card, right? But it also offers these moments of like um, pride and hubris, right? Yes. The best combination in board games where you can feel clever and you can feel silly and you've done that to yourself. What were your impressions of Evergreen? I really liked Evergreen. I liked the idea that you were growing trees from little Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I thought that was adorable. I liked how you got little twigs and then you could upgrade the twigs into trees. And then the sun moved and you went, oh no, I <laughs> built my tree in the wrong place. I thought it was really very clever because I liked particularly how uh, you think you're doing pretty well because you've built your trees in an area that's going to score a lot of points, but then a card is left over that suddenly makes that point scoring area less good because instead of being a very fertile region, it suddenly has these death symbols mm. that overtake some of the fertility of this area and suddenly that area is less good at scoring you points. Yeah, that's the other beautiful moment where like you're at the beginning of the game, you're not paying a lot of attention to the fertility zone, which yes. determines which zones are going to score your points at the end of the game. And then as it sort of manipulates itself and builds up, like you notice like this overall strategy merge because it's a very tactical game at the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the tactics shift more and more into strategy as the game goes on. And it's, it's a very subtle shift because it creeps up on you. Mm. Uh, and I think it's very pleasing because once again, you feel like you're caught off guard, but not in a bad way, in a way where it's like, oh, I should have been thinking about this. And and then it's suddenly there and you have to deal with it. <laughs> I think I enjoyed this game better at three than I did at two. Having said that, 
I did still enjoy it a lot at two. But what changed between the three player and the two player was the variability of the cards. Mm. Because when the cards were laid out and there was only two of you, there was a good chance you were going to get the card that you wanted. When there was three of you picking the cards, now there wasn't suddenly. And the, I was much more focused on the what was left going to be left over. And, and I was taking things that I didn't necessarily want to take because I didn't want it to be left over and decrease my fertility zone that I'd built, worked so hard to build up into. The one last thing I'd like to add is is the aesthetic presentation of Evergreen. Oh, it's lovely. It's very nice. It's very minimalist, but in that good way, where like there's just enough color, there's just enough vibrancy to make things pop, and you have these nice little wooden pieces. The one thing I'll say is that if you have sausage fingers, then... Oh, the I was li- knocking stuff over all the time. Yeah, the little <laughs> things are, like, not so great. It's But there are little cutouts in the board, mm-hmm. so it is easier to... Well, they're almost necessary, in. right? Yes. Aren't you glad about these double-layered boards I that know. have emerged, I love right? I double-layered board. Oh, they're so good. You remember board games 10 years ago? <laughs> it's just like, here's a thin cardboard sheet, plays... 20 pieces on we it. We even managed to move the whole board from one table to another at mm-hmm. one point without mm-hmm. everything falling apart completely. I think that is miraculous. And that's one of the things I'm very glad that have emerged in board games. From trees to threes, meaning 2003s, which is this year, which has some Games that you are anticipating. 2023, Elaine. What did I say? You said 2003. <laughs> Whoops. Well, well, don't don't talk about your anticipated games of 2003, please. I'm not even sure I know what board games came out in you 2003. Know what I meant. Okay, so my top 10 anticipated games from 2023. Mm-hmm. I will preface by saying... I I impose no recommendation on these. This is merely my personal excitement, but you have to understand that my personal excitement can sometimes get the best of me because I am sometimes excited by things I know will be not good. Uh Uh, uh, I just want to see how they turned out. So... Same with films. Yeah, Yeah. I guess, right? Like, sometimes I look at something and I think, this is going to be bad. I can't wait. (laughs) Right? So uh, I think think I'll I'll preface if that's the case. Uh, But here you go. Here's my 10 picks. So let's start with Galactic Renaissance. Galactic Renaissance is an upcoming game from designer Christian Martinez. Now, you might be wondering, where have I heard that name? Well, you've heard that name if you ever played Inish. Uh, because you love that game. I love Inish, and it's also a spiritual sequel to Inish mm-hmm. by publisher Matago Games. I have no idea how this is going to go. I have been somewhat less impressed with the output from Matago, uh, as it hasn't been quite hitting the same highs as it has in the early 2010s. I think the last game I really enjoyed from them was Treasure Island. And even then, that was a game that I think was very Marmite for a lot of people, where some people loved the idea of, like, you know, tracing things with a compass or whatever. uh, And some were like, what is this? This feels so abstract. I'm not enjoying this, right? Uh, So we'll see how this goes. Uh, But tentatively, a little bit excited about the spiritual sequel to Inish. If you'd like to watch... Our review of Finish, it's available on our 
uh, YouTube channel, you might have to do some searching in our old videos playlist, which if you just go to youtube.com slash no pun included, you'll find it there. Uh, but, but that's basically number one. It's Galactic Renaissance, spiritual sequel to Inish. Want to add, these are not in any specific order. There's not an order of excitement. It's just 10 games I'm excited about. It's a pool of excitement. Yes. Uh, now, talking about me being really excited and also being a little bit trepidatious, it's Sleeping Gods Distant Skies, uh -huh. the spiritual sequel to Sleeping uh -huh. Gods, a game that we have given just about the most lavish review imaginable, where uh, we didn't just go, oh yeah, we'll review this game, we analysed the entire genre and traced its history and design roots all the way to Gary Gygax, and in that video, we had some not very nice things to say about Gary Gygax. If you're wondering what's so not nice about Gary Gygax, watch what that video. Weird. Yeah, it's our Sleeping Gods video. Uh, so uh, this looks like a tightening, tightening up of Sleeping Gods, um, a, a sort of adventure game where, uh, you know, you're sort of exploring a map, a fantasy map, you, you know, and uh, this one's more aerial base the previ previous one was nautical mm -hmm. you were aboard a ship the manticore now you are on a, on a i don't know some sort of air thing right i think Vessel. i i think it's got like you know piloty themes Ooh. going through it uh, i know that there's a lot less characters so before you had to at least play two characters in sleeping gods i think that's been rounded off now mm -hmm. uh to like there's five characters in total mm -hmm. and uh i think as much as I love Sleeping Gods, there's room for improvement. So we'll see if Sleeping Gods Distant Skies is that improvement. Next up, it's Arcs by uh, publisher Leader Games and design, designer Cole Worley. I am, again, trepidatiously excited about Arcs. Uh, uh, we've never managed to do a review of Oath. And Cole Worley is also known for Pax Pamir, Pax Pamir 2nd Edition, and John Company, John Company 2nd Edition, and of course, everyone's darling Root. Mm. Um, Arcs takes some of the ideas of Oath, which is a game we haven't reviewed. I'm very sad, but Tom Brewster did a, of oh, Shut Up and Sit Down, did a pretty good review of it. Um, what interests me in Oath uh, is the generational storytelling the effects of yes. one game leading to the next. I think Arcs is a tightening of these ideas uh, where you play a sequence of free games and those free games form a campaign. So it's not like it goes on forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's tightened to free games and you can also play it as an individual game. So there was some criticism of the individual game not working by reviewers who did Kickstarter previews. However, having said that, as development of the game continued, I know there's been a lot of changes to ARCs from that initial prototype that was sent out to previewers. So I imagine a lot of work has been done on it as time went on, and it's bound to be released, released this year. I backed it on Kickstarter. It's going to come. So I'm very, 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 very excited to try it also because circling back to scout it's a trick-taking game so there you go next up it's a sort of a uber entry uh, and by that i mean i've i've put two games in there and it's my euro game entry oh. i'm not sure which euro game i'm more excited about out of these two so one is pampero 
uh, which is by designer Julian Pombo and art by Ian O'Toole. It's all about building wind farms. And uh, this designer is known for collaborating with Vito Lacerda. And I think I know what to expect from that. Uh, <laughs> but who knows? It, it looks intriguing. It looks gorgeous. Um, and I can't wait to give it a try. Uh, normally, uh, Vito Lacerda's, uh, especially when collaborating with Ian O'Toole, is published mm. by Eagle and Griffin. This is from Ape Games. Uh, I don't know why Eagle and Griffin did not pick this up. I imagine they would have had first dibs. Uh, we'll see. I am tentatively curious. My other Eurogame entry is Atlas Lost Rise of the New Sovereigns. Oh. Now, that is a loaded title, but it is from designer Totsuka Chuo, who uh, is also the designer for Ostia, a game we will be reviewing very shortly on this very podcast episode. And the reason I'm excited about that is because Ostia was a sort of spiritual reimplementation, a fan service, an homage mm. to uh, Trajan. This is, once again, a sort of fan service, homage, reimplementation of the ideas in Beyond the Sun, which is a game we have reviewed in the past. And uh, I'm interested to see what's happening there. Again, something I backed on Kickstarter. We'll be receiving shortly. This year. Sometime. <laughs> it's Kickstarters. Next up, Lords of Ragnarok. Another spiritual sequel. This is a spiritual sequel to Lords of Hellas, uh, published by Awakened Realms, uh, a company I have frequently labeled as serial overpromisers. Uh, and <laughs> let's say I'm trepidatious about this. Let's say that I am worried. Let's say that I want to see how this pans out. Mm -hmm. uh, we have chosen not to review Lords of Hellas based on uh, the game's somewhat sexist depiction of women. Uh, I have not looked into the art of Lords of Ragnarok, but I am not holding my breath. Uh, but I am keen to see how it all plays out. So uh, whenever it comes, it comes, we'll see. I'm sensing a theme. I'm sensing a theme of like my, my list. Sequels. My list is just spiritual sequels, <laughs> right? Elaine, uh, you remember Pipeline? Of course. So from Ryan Courtney comes Trailblazers, a little game with little plastic cards of not pipes, trails. You see, trails. Ah. They're not pipes, they're not trails, pipes. right? You're not connecting pipes, you're connecting trails. This one looks much lighter than uh, Pipeline. Pipeline or Curious Cargo as well, which was. Um, not a game I enjoyed. Uh, some people like it. It was just like, again, it felt like a lot of work for not a lot of reward. Uh, Trailblazers looks like it slims things down even more mm -hmm. and returns to that core puzzle of laying down pipes. I'm sorry, trails. Uh, and I, I'm just excited. You said I'm, that on purpose. I did. I did. <laughs> I'm just excited. I'm, I'm just excited to lay some trails pipes. Trails. Okay, this isn't a spiritual sequel to anything. What? This is just Martin Wallace's Bloodstones. So, uh, the reason I'm kind of intrigued by Bloodstones is that I think Martin Wallace can do asymmetry well. Mm. And in some ways, Bloodstones looks like a very old, very aged design 
where it's like weird asymmetric armies battling it out on a map and those armies are literally domino pieces not not set in birmingham this time no not set in birmingham just just on like medievalish looking like like it's almost arthurian england that's the vibe i'm getting from the artwork it's not because there's like skeletons and necromancers and what i mean i'm sure there were skeletons in arthurian england probably necromancers too uh but yeah it's it's called that sort of artistic vibe of like ye old england i i don't know why that's what it says to me uh, but I am I'm just interested in in putting down dominoes on a cloth map, honestly, and battling some asymmetrical armies. And if one person can do it well, I think that person is Martin Wallace. I think you're probably right there. Uh, so intrigued, very, very intrigued. Uh, next up on my list, a game we already have and I have punched and bagged it. Not read the rules yet, but Horseless Carriage. Mm. The first game to come out from Splotterspellen. Uh, since Food Chain Magnate, which I think propelled that company into the stratosphere. Mm. Food Chain Magnet, a lot of people are in massive. love with. My relationship to Food Chain Magnet, I think is best summarized in the video I did about Food Chain Magnet, which I titled, Food Chain Magnet, Is It Monopoly? Uh, there's something more hiding behind that title. It's not as shallow as it sounds. Uh, and... I treat Splotterspellen like I treat art installations. I am enormously fascinated by their games, but I don't think I need to experience them more than once. <laughs> right? It's like art. I've, I've seen been to the it. National Gallery now. Yeah. That's it, I'm done. Yeah. I've seen that Dali's Lobster Telephone once, mm-hmm. right? I was next to it. I didn't I pick up the handle. No one let me do that, oh, right? Were you allowed? No, you weren't. No. no. Well, then. then- you would you couldn't do it anyway well but i wanted Even if to you'd want it, oh you did want to. i wanted to right that okay. was my point anyway you could make one at home you could just buy an old telephone and a lobster and but it, it would it wouldn't be no that's not how it works moving on uh <laughs> we're back to spiritual sequels hooray <laughs> after king's dilemma we have queen's dilemma uh mm. an iteration on the sort of pokerish sort of blind bidding sort of uh, storytelling game, uh, legacy game. I really enjoyed King's Dilemma. Uh, we named it as our game of the year. Half fifty percent game of the year, right. I believe, is the correct nomenclature. Uh, but yeah, bring on more. I want to see how the system builds. I want to see how it iterates. I want to see what's new in the dilemma world, and I want more dilemmas. And I want to accuse my friends of of being horrible people it's always nice to have a socially acceptable space in order to accuse our friends of being horrible people i Uh, I agree i agree space i agree and my final entry uh this is not a spiritual sequel to anything uh this is earthborn rangers Mm -hmm. so i i'm hoping this comes out this year this has been one of those games that's been sort of like slow to develop because i think it was initially announced in 2020 all the way back uh, so the one thing that's interesting about Earthborn Rangers is that they've pledged towards sustainability in the production of this ah. board game. I think that because of the shipping crisis yes. and the whole pandemic thing, things have went a little askew in that regard, and they're no longer sure if they can produce the game uh, in 
the regions where they are right. like sending them to. So their initial idea was that, you know, American backers will have their games manufactured in America, right. European in Europe, uh -huh. and so on and on and on. I think they have some difficulty with Europe, um, which is understandable. Uh, but I'm hoping that there's some still effort towards recycled materials and things like that. Uh, it's also uh, by a new publishing company headed by Andrew Navarro. Oh. Um, that is uh, the former, uh, I want to say, director of Fi Fantasy Flight mm -hmm. Games, uh, who then left to Chip Theory Games and then quit Chip Theory Games to start a company focused on sustainability. That's now, nice. I'm not going to say those two events are related. <laughs> <laughs> are you talking about the fact that Chip Theory is entirely made of plastic? Yep. Games made of plastic. Neoprene, poker chips, everything plastic. Rule books, cards. So, so there'll be games that you can't play in the bath or uh, in the swimming pool? I think they will be highly inappropriate for bath time okay that's a shame yeah do you know i anytime anyone reviews any chip theory games they just do it as an obligatory gag now which is to chuck things in a bath we've well, done it other people have done you it have yeah like, you why have would to. you not like yeah. that's the place you can play them that you can't play any other game i think the last time i did it i just like i i did it as a throwaway gag like i know we've done it before but let's just quickly get over this and chuck things in a bath right i remember because w what else do you do here right i remember chucking things in a bath for three minutes that was an exciting list i'm looking forward to the games of 2023 thank you very much i am looking forward to all of these and i am sure we will report on them either on talk cardboard or on no pun included which you can find on youtube still to come we have artisans of splendent veil and Ostia, a game that we've already mentioned, and also some more comments from our listeners. Let's talk about Artisans of Splendid Vale. Talking of spiritual sequels, uh -huh. this is a spiritual sequel to Legacy of Dragonhold from designer Nikki Valens. Does this game have dragons in it? Uh, not to the best of my knowledge. Oh. This might change because it's a narrative campaign game. Uh, and in the style of narrative campaign games, uh, anything could happen because we haven't played it to its fullest, although we have played quite a bit of it. It's the game we've played most this year so far. That's true. Uh, one of the reasons for that is how, in some ways, easy it is to play. Because a lot of Artisans of Splendid Vale is contained within the four book-sized books that come in this board game. What is a book-sized book, Efka? Think of a book that isn't small. Okay, I'm thinking of a book that isn't small. Think of War a book. War and Peace. Okay, smaller than War and Peace, but bigger than... A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, right? Some, somewhere in between there. Like like Fellowship of the Ring, that size uh -huh. book, right? There's four of these in this dartboard game. But there is an extra book, which is a ringbound book, which is where you do the dungeon crawlery combat, right? So uh, one of the beautiful things about Artisans of Splendid Vale is that you each get to pick a character. There's a nice forward about each character and what they're like uh, and what they do within the game. So they're all artisans. So uh, uh, one of the characters, uh, Harinia, that I'm playing is an alchemist. You're playing Farah. Right. And Farah is? A tailor. So uh, there's also two other characters. I can't remember their names because they're not in our game. So they don't feature as much, right? 
And the beautiful thing is that uh, the character that you're playing, you get their book, right? Mm -hmm. And all of the books are pretty much identical. So they have a lot of the same entries, right? But they also have some personal stuff that is only relevant to that character. And what you do a lot in this game is like in many choose your own adventure games you read passages and those passages will lead you to other passages but unlike in a choose your own adventure game you do not read these passages by yourself because mm. you're playing with other players so um this is a really beautiful but very simple innovation to playing a choose your own adventure game with friends is that you each have the book and you each have almost the same text and you're reading it together. And that might sound, you know, like, like what's the innovation in that, right? Mm -hmm. But actually, what that does is because you can read along. One of the things I don't, I really don't like is when someone reads at me because I have ADHD and I just tune out, right? I don't want to tune out. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be disrespectful to people. That's not something that, like, I desire. But it just happens. I try as I might cannot control it so for me everyone having their own individual book it's beautiful it's like okay i can follow along because i will read as you're reading i'll just read it in my brain and you know whatever you're reading we'll read it together it's great but there's this beautiful moment where um within your text you see these little inserts that are relating to other characters that are not your character and you know at that point they'll something they'll say something that is individual to them. Mm, so you don't see Yeah, so you don't see that text. So when you see that little prompt, you're like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens there because there's like a little full of character insert, right? So that is the part of Artisans of Splendid Veil that really works for me. Now, what makes this more than a choose-your-own-adventure game? Well, there's two things. One of them is that sometimes within the story part of the game, you'll get um, this sort of visual map, right? And this visual map will have various numbers. And those numbers are passages that you can read as you're exploring this visual space. And you can choose together, and sometimes you will even have numbers that are only available to your character. So that this will be something that's individual to you, right? Uh, and that is sort of a simple way of delivering a branching narrative, right? Like you can explore here, you can explore there, you can, you can find out what this bookshelf is or what's under this stone or, you know, that sort of thing, right? The other part is combat. And that is the part that doesn't always work for me in this game. So combat in some ways is not complicated because it is essentially you have two actions and the actions are listed on your character sheet. You can move, you can um, attack, you can attack at ranged if your character has that ability. Uh, you can sort of manipulate the dice because you roll some dice at the start of combat and the dice determine what action you can take. And then whether you deal damage, it's like, oh, you have an attack two, plus you roll a die, plus if you spend like the certain symbol, you get to roll an extra die and you get mm -hmm. to add one to your attack. You know, it's not very complicated. But the flow of combat and the flow of scenario design can sometimes lead to scenarios that are way over long for what mm -hmm. this game is trying to achieve. Because I'm sort of burying, burying the lead here. 
But the big appeal of this game is the storytelling and it's the ethos, it's the sort of relaxed environment that it is trying to build because it's a very fluffy environment it's fluffy it feels wholesome it feels playful it's colorful it's vibrant it's um it's just very welcoming yeah it's very welcoming yeah. right um it says at the start of the game choose your characters well read their descriptions and see if you can relate to them and i think we did that well because we each relate to our characters yes uh, they're developed well enough that I feel like, hey, I relate to how this character feels. I would react in this situation in a similar way. Mm. And for me, that's nice because they're not me. But they let me embody a part of me within that character. Yes. And I think that's a rare moment, you know, in board games especially. I don't know. I just, I don't feel that kind of connection often. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there is a kind of role-playing element to it. Even though mostly you're reading, right? Right. But there's something about these characters that really makes them come alive and makes them feel like real people, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I would say tonally, this hits somewhere between Final Fantasy and the works of Becky Chambers, mm -hmm. uh, who is a sci-fi author. She did the Wayfarer series, mm -hmm. which I'm a big fan of. Uh, there's four books in that series. I think two and four are the strongest, is my personal opinion. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt like the, this, is, this is a really strong piece of work narratively. But the scenarios then become unbalanced and not in a way like in terms of game design and balance but more like in a way that they take up too much space in the design they take up too much the combat yeah the combat they take up too much time of what you're doing because most of the time what i want to do in this game is explore i want the combat to take about half an hour mm -hmm. at most and there have been combat scenarios in it that felt somewhat tedious because not only did they take over an hour but also and that's in a two-player game but also there is this element of like you having to account for a lot of what the enemies do mm. uh we encountered one scenario where it just became obnoxious because there were so many different effects from different enemies and they all did different things and i sort of talking in vague terms mm. to avoid spoilers uh, but it was a scenario that I just really, really, really struggled to get on with. And I just wanted it to end. And I wanted to go back to the narrative. The other thing I'm going to pull up on is the rulebook. Mm. Uh, because I just did not expect the rulebook to be this voluptuous. And again, not in terms of size, but more in terms of how it's written and how many ideas game design ideas it's trying to get across it's written like a war game rule book and those of you who are not familiar with war game rule books they're basically technical manuals with bullet points and this is what this felt like there are a lot of rules a lot of niche case scenarios a lot of like what have yous and they're placed in this order that isn't intuitive for the genre of game that this is mm. because ideally what you want is a rule set for combat that is 
quick and simple because whilst this game is not necessarily aimed at like young adults, right? Um, I think this it's very appropriate for young adults. It's appropriate, like for let's, let's say a parent uh, uh, playing it with a ten year old, you know, uh, and just sort of taking them through it. Mm-hmm. But because combat takes so long and the rules are so arcane, it, I think they're going to lose interest. Yeah, I found a similar thing. Um, I found the rule book a little bit difficult to get through. Honestly, it took me some concentration to work out how everything interacted with each other and then when we actually went to play it it wasn't that it wasn't difficult at all to to work out how to play the game um and the thing that i found with the combat was that the initial scenario of combat that we played was I, I really enjoyed because it felt like it was part of the story. So so the, the rule book does say that you will always have some story from the book and then you will always have, or I think it says most of the time, have a combat scenario, which is fine. But it feels almost tacked on in a way. It feels forced in, mm. in some way because, like you said, you know, I wanted to get back to the story. But, but the first one, the first combat scenario we played, I really enjoyed because it felt like just part of the story was coming alive so you know you're in this combat scenario this thing happens and oh look you're you can see the picture of it happening Mm -hmm. you're in that and you're doing it Mm -hmm. and the outcome of this will determine what happens next and that was cool i really like that but then when we played further combat scenarios and they were longer and they didn't quite make as much sense, it became a little bit arduous. And the other thing is, with the rule book being so laid out like it is, like a like a war game rule book, and having these very finicky rules, some of the combat rules weren't clear. Mm. Uh, for example, placement, because everything is uh, a hex. But some of the hexes, because of the way it's drawn in the art, are not clear where the borders of them are. Yeah. Well, it's not that it's just there's hex. There's hexes and squares. Yes. Right? So hexes work interchangeably with squares. There's no rules to say, oh, this hex adjoins. Why have hexes and squares apart from artistic expression? Right? And is it really ne- Why not keep it simple? Because for me, like when I see a hex next to a square, that's confusing. Mm. Right? I don't, mm. like, I don't want that. Why does this exist? Why couldn't have been simplified? Why couldn't have this been trimmed away in development to make it more easy, more approachable, more streamlined? It just doesn't need to be there. Mm. And And I get that it is a very expressive game. It is clearly... Nikki Valens uh, just making this this world right and and bringing this world alive and that's cool and I really appreciate mm. that but I think there has to be like some sort of line where it's like this is this is maybe too voluptuous too much it's going you know it needs to be a little bit contained mm. and uh, to bring back a positive uh, one of the things that I really really liked about Artisans of Splendid Vale is the sense of discovery. There are so many things that you are doled out from time to time. I will say I would like these things to be doled out at maybe like 20% more, uh, but but the nature of a campaign game, again, I have to be vague about what's going on here, right? But you, 
you know, you manipulate your character sheet. You mm. put on stickers. Yeah, I really enjoyed that uh, part and, of it. And the way it's done, it's it's slightly different from other games because some of it is more visual than I think what people are used to. And and it, it's visually representative of what happens to your characters. Yes. And I think it's engaging in, in this way that is, um, just feels new and fresh. Hmm. And again, that comes because of that sort of artistic expression of what a game can be. Because I think at the heart of it, Artisans of Spl Splendid Veil challenges what a board game is. Mm. And and a lot of the times it does it very successfully. But as part of that challenging, it does things that are just feel claggy <laughs> and 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 a little bogged down. Maybe right? a little bit. I did really enjoy the interaction between the stories. I enjoyed the fact that for the most part we were reading the same thing mm. but then there were little bits that only i read or only you read or nobody read because those characters weren't in our party mm. and when we got to those little maps in the book and we said to each other do you have this number do you have this number oh no i don't have it well read your bit read your rip let's see what happens to your character and it was something very specific to to who your character is and what they and do what they do what they're an artisan of uh, like my character has like a Pinterest board where I'm gathering ideas, which is just amazing. And it really feels like I'm developing my character as I go along. And I feel a connection with them, like you said. Yeah, I think my favorite moment in this game was, okay, this isn't really a spoiler because mm -hmm. I, I don't think this is like a narrative beat that spoils anything. But at one point, my character uh, just laid on the floor and wanted to cry. Uh, and and, yeah. and I thought, yeah, I get that, right? That's, that's the thing as well. It's very, even though it's a fantasy world and fantasy yeah. characters, a lot of it is quite real life. Yeah. Like it's what you would be like maybe if you were doing this adventuring and you're an artisan. You're not really an adventurer. You're an artisan. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just need a rest. And yeah. sometimes you just need to regroup and gather your kind of mental energy back again and that that was brilliant i thought that was a really nice part of this game i think the game does a really good job telegraphing this ethos because one of the things you can do is you can not go on an adventure yeah, and stay i think at home. yeah you can <laughs> stay at home and i think that's brilliant and you get to do something you know it, it's obviously a mini session mm. so you're probably gonna do it if like uh a you want to and b as part of like you know, we'll do two sessions this evening, right? Mm. We'll, mm. we'll 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 stay at home and then we'll go on an mm. adventure, right? But you can do that legitimately. You can be like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just staying at I home. Maybe getting on with my chores. You know, like, <laughs> yes. how many games do that, right? It's lovely. So in some ways, I feel like Artisans of Splendid Vale is unique, uh, a statement and a breakthrough. Um, I I think it's it's stepping on new grounds. In some ways, it's just baggy. And I I really am only bringing that up because parts of it I like so much, I wish it wasn't. It, yeah, right. It could, it could be a little bit more refined. But overall, I think we both really enjoyed it a lot. If you've been hearing mouth sounds, by the way, for the last 10 minutes, there is a dog on my lap licking my arm. That's not me. Somewhere in the middle of the podcast, the dog has arrived on the lap. Yes, and he's just licking and licking and licking. We still have Ostia to talk about, but first let's go through some more 
correspondence. I just want to say thank you to everyone that's written in so far. There's so many bits here that I don't think we could possibly read them all out. We would be here all night. The podcast would be three hours long. Sarah asks, do you do anything to ensure you have copies of the latest hotness early so you can have thoughts to share before it hits the shelves specific stories or generally ah i have reverted back to just buying games uh we used to rely on review copies and we used to try and communicate with publishers uh the nature of mpi being you know pretty exclusive from relationships with publishers uh means that uh, i think publishers don't get the usual level of of collaboration Mm -hmm. you know as they do with some other board game media enterprises and uh, they're not as excited to send copies to us sometimes i this is maybe a little bit more candid but it is how it is so uh sometimes we will get review copies sometimes in fact there have been instances of me for example buying a review copy directly from the board game publisher's website and the board game publisher then emailing me and saying Hello, Efka. Would you like me to refund this to you? And then you can have it as a review copy. And I went, sure. Right. Uh, but but no, we, we generally, most of the time, back our own games. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we haven't, we'll disclose it, such as with Evergreen. We received that from uh, the uh, publisher. But most of the time, we just buy them like everyone else. I think we do listen to other board game podcasts and we look through BGG. Uh, but ultimately, we pick things that we like the look of and that we think might be interesting to play and to review and to talk about. Oz asks, being as specific as you like, what is the best way in which a legacy game made you alter a component or components permanently? Well, I can't say that, but uh, because I would, I, would, I would be spoiling things, right? Uh, but I think uh, two things stand out. Uh, one would be Pandemic Legacy Season 1, because that was my first experience of, like, things permanently changing. I still don't want to spoil Pandemic Legacy Season 1, because there are people who haven't played it, and I think they would have a blast if they do. But the first thing, the first big thing that happens to those that have played this game, um, I was I was like, wow, this can happen? Okay, this changes everything I thought about board games, right? Like, how I perceive board games... That's all gone out of the window. Big moment for me, right? My second thing is bringing it back to Artisans of Splendid Vale. Mm. Uh, the first time your character suffered an injury, there was just something very simple and subtle about what happened. Mm. But also um, the way it was coded in with the components of the game. It wasn't mind-blowing or anything like that. It was very, It was very subtle, but very like... Because of how much we connected to those characters, mm. it was very, um, it became personal. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that a lot. So that that meant something more to me than, than a, a usual legacy experience. I think I agree. I don't have a specific component, but I like it when something that you do ultimately changes what will happen in the future and i know that's an element of of all legacy games but when you see it coming to fruition Mm. and you're like ah impact (laughs) impact (laughs) and i agree that it's something that you experience in the genre as a whole and it does change the way that you think about 
board games. Mm. Isaac says, I'd love to hear more X is a better version of substitute for Y takes along the lines of air hockey video or pitching food chain magnet as Monopoly, something you talked about earlier, but hopefully more ridiculous and stretching the boundaries of plausible comparison. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's only so many of those you can do. Everything is chess. Yeah, everything (laughs) Everything is chess. chess. Um, Yeah, what did I pitch as chess? There was something, oh, Ankh. I said Ankh is chess, mm. right? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure that'll be a feature I- I- in our videos as as we go along because I do like to stretch the credibility like the of, of, of analogies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the food chain magnet is Monopoly. Oh, that's a long running gag that goes way, way back. Mm. I'm sure I'll tell the story at some point. <laughs> Jacob Davenport asks, has Kickstarter been good or bad for game players? Also, which kinds of games come across your desk that you do not review? Ever get far into a game review process and abandon it? Yeah, actually, uh, we can combine these two questions into one answer. Uh, Very recently, I worked a lot on a review of Darkest Dungeon, the board game. We even sort of uh, put in Darkest Dungeon, the board game, into a couple of our recent videos, Mm. as if to say, we're working on a review of this. And... Um, the the process of which has taken me. I'm really not saying this lightly. I don't. I don't want people to think that I'm making a joke when I say this. But I got depression from uh, trying to write a review of Darkest Dungeon, the board game, and I was I was so sad about everything. Uh, and it is to do a lot with the Kickstarter publishing model. So maybe it's something I'll touch more on in the future, uh, because I'm still sort of processing those feelings, but. I, there's some things about Kickstarter. This is again, this is such a complicated subject because th- there's so much good that has come out of Kickstarter when it comes to board games. But there's also so much that I, I really detest, and um, and Darkest Dungeon was the epitome of that. Hmm. Yeah, we've had uh, quite long conversations about this kind of thing, haven't we? Yeah. Of how Kickstarter is changing the face of board gaming and is it a good thing and how it's changing buying board games specifically Mm. um, and where it might be going and is it going in a negative potentially direction? I think a lot of people are asking that question right now. To sort of bring it back a little bit more, I I would like to say that sometimes it is nowhere near as... um, overwhelming as that sometimes we will play a game and we'll go this just isn't a review Mm. maybe we even like this game Mm. you know uh and it just doesn't feel right to do a video about it and uh i guess the way we do videos because we don't do many of them and we pick our focus we get to have some luxury Mm. in terms of how and what we pick and sometimes that upsets people uh we certainly I think upset some publishers by saying, do you know what? We're just not going to review this because this, this, and that, that. And we really don't think this is right or good or, you know, what have you, right? Or or sometimes it's just not right for us, mm. right? Yeah. We but we are selective. We can't see a way that we can do this game justice, whether good or bad. Or well, we can't see a way how this game is doing justice to us. <laughs> yeah, there is that. They're, both both happen. Yeah. Both happen. Stuffed with Rice says, 
This may have been touched on before, but would love to hear the backstory of how you decided to create the video essays and if there was something in particular that triggered it. Also, if there are any other meaty topics you thought about covering in the future, no guarantees, but just areas of potential interest. That's a really lovely correspondence. Mm. This sort of wraps up everything mm. we've been talking about. So yeah, it did start with the food chain magnet video uh, where... Oh, I might as well tell the story of this. I'll try and be <laughs> succinct, right? A very long time ago, uh, we were having um, a sort of a wind-down session at UK Games Expo with a couple of board game designers um, and a couple of media people. Mm -hmm. And I made a joke that, do you know what? Food Chain Magnets is just Monopoly, right? And everything, everyone sort of... Time stopped. Yeah, time stopped. <laughs> and everyone looked at me and then laughed at the ludicrousness of that proposition as if I had finally lost it, mm. right? And sure enough, it was Sunday at Expo and I was tired, right? But I thought to myself, no, there is something to this, right? And so it percolated in my brain for a really quite a long time. And I think that video, looking back on it, is a little sloppy. I think I could have done the delivery better. But I think the, the point um, struck people. And, and so... I don't know. Something about that and putting that those words to a video uh opened up something where I felt this is this is more than just one video, right? We can be a little bit more elaborate in how we talk about board games mm. rather than just reviews. And and we've experimented with that and I think some of them have worked, some of them haven't worked. Uh, my personal favorite is still the Kanban video. Mm. Uh, and that hasn't necessarily worked with audiences. But I think people who have seen that video uh, really, really enjoyed it, right? And I enjoyed writing it. But it's not really something that we are hyper-focused on. I think a lot of people said, oh, this is what differentiates you now. Mm. And I'm like, okay, that's fair, but that's not all I want to do, you know? Uh, and these subjects, I feel like... They're, they're more expressive rather than analytical. Mm. And, and with expressive stuff, you really have to let it come to you because when you start forcing it, it starts to become stale. Mm. So we'll definitely do more stuff like that in the future, but only when the right story comes along. Yes. I think we've got some great ones. Again, Blood on the Clock Tower. Mm. That was a really good People one. People really like The Sleeping Gods as well. That, that is the one that has done best. Mm. I think it's sloppy. Uh, I think I again I could have done that better, uh, but but I think the beginning of that is really tight. The Gary Gygax stuff, mm. it's just like, yep, right on, and and also the uh, the um, fighting fantasy, you know, bit and and the evolution of that. I think that's also pretty good. I think it's just the sleeping gods bit actually, which is the titular bit, you know, that that I could have been a little bit more insightful about, right? But but yeah, the stuff that I actually like the most, it hasn't it hasn't done that well in terms of being seen and being identified. But the people who have seen it, strangely, really, really responded to those mm. videos in a very strong way. So for us, it's always going to, by necessity almost, going to be a mix of, you know, interesting subjects. And, and there are some that are really tickling my brain. Again, Kickstarter, I've been wanting and trying to write a video about Kickstarter uh, I had two false starts uh, because 
I, it's such a complex subject. That was a little bit of a tangent because the question was about meaty topics and not Kickstarter. Well, no, I mean, um, it is it is the meaty Although topic. that is a meaty topic too. Th- that is a meaty topic that I've been thinking about. You know, uh, if if the ans- if I had to produce an answer of what would be the next essay about, I would probably say about Kickstarter but I've tried and failed so far. Thank you again for the questions. We will be reading out more next time. So if you have any questions for us or anything you want to talk about, please email me at elaine at nopunincluded.com. Also, if you've played any of the games that we've been talking about in this podcast, feel free to write in about your experiences, positives, negatives, agrees, disagrees, we would love to put them on the podcast. Or you can always let us know on our Discord. Which you can join via our Patreon. Patreon.com slash no pun included, which is where you support us. We have one more game to talk about, and that game is... Ostia, uh, by designer Totsuka Chuo. So this was um, a Kickstarter that came in that I backed, uh, and I backed it as... Like, the impression I got was that, hey, this is someone who really enjoyed Steffenfeld's Trajan and wanted to iterate on Trajan, right? Because it's a Mancala game. If you're not familiar with Mancala, this is a a board game mechanism based on a traditional game that dates back to a very long time. And I believe some cultures claim that it is their invention, but actually there's evidence of it from all over the world like cornish pasties like cornish pasties yeah um but there is um this sort of beautiful moment where you think a game is what you think it is because ostia has the same theme as trajan Mm. it has the same idea mancala you know what is that theme uh, oh, trading in the Mediterranean. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but in ancient Roman times, <laughs> right? Um, but again, that I think that relates to Trajan, right? Uh, but it felt like, in so many ways, that game, but also not that game. So to summarize what you're doing, if you're not familiar with Mancala, again, it's like the idea that like uh, you pick up a clump of stones from one spot and then place them one by one sequentially on like... spots in a row right so here you have six spots in a hexagon and all these spots correspond to actions and uh so what you'll be doing in ostia is the very standard trading in the mediterranean things like oh get a ship or Move move your ship build a building you know like uh get points buy a card it'll be worth points right uh it's a very typical point salad where like you'll do things a lot of the things you do give you points how efficient can you be at getting these points Mm. by the time the clock runs out uh well turns out not very efficient because taking an action is the most complicated thing in a very simple rule set right the idea of ostia is that there okay so there are six actions on this hexagon and these six actions are in the sort of Mancala sequence, right? So you will have some ships, right, on one space. And you'll say, I want to get resources for this action uh, that is the space that I'm starting on, right? And you'll pick up the ships. And how many ships you picked up, that's how many resources you get that will help you with that action that you picked up the ships what? from. But you don't get to do that action. No, 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 no. <laughs> 
right? You don't get the resources for the action that you're going to do. You're going to get resources for the action of where your ships land. So you'll be placing these ships on this hexagon in clockwise order, one by one, and where you run out of those ships, right, is the action that you're going to be doing, right? Which you might have the resources for or not, as was frequently the case in my game. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you have this, like, thing where... At the start of the game, a lot of the actions don't even do anything because you haven't got the things that you need to do to, to do the you're things. you're working out how to manipulate it, so you have. Yeah, because what the game is, essentially, is a lot of tracks. Some of these tracks masquerade as not tracks. For example, your ship travels across the Mediterranean, right, and reaches different ports. It's a track. It's a track. It's four tracks that split off into four different directions, right? And then you can build buildings in these ports, but only the ones that your ship have reached right so if your ship hasn't traveled out yet and reached yet you can't build buildings because there's nowhere to build buildings to mm -hmm. right or maybe you've built a building but your ship hasn't moved further so you haven't got anywhere to build buildings and so on and on and on and on there's there's tracks they have prerequisites that are resources that you need to spend and then also um because you are constantly drip feeding these ships into the various action spots, right? They might make you a lot of resources because there's like six ships clumped up, right? No, six actually is a bad example because you, that's the one exception where you get the resources. And then you move all the way back around yeah. and you start, you finish where you started. Exactly, and get to do the action where, but let's say you have five ships and then you land on an action that you didn't entirely want to do. So you got a lot of resources, but you can't do anything. Um, so this was like a really brain-burning game, but in a way where the rules are actually not complicated and what you score points for aren't complicated. You're moving up some tracks, you're doing some set collection, you're getting some cards, but just to do an action was... Oh, right? And and also, I, I've said this on our Discord, this was, you know, on the scale of Feld to Uwe, mm. right? This was more Feld than Feld. <laughs> right because because what effectively happens in euro games you have two types of euro games you have the euro games where it's really hard to take an action but really simple what you score points for so that's your felds your ostia uh and you have games where it's really simple to take an action but it's really complicated to figure out how to score points that's your uwe rosenbergs right mm. And I think that's that's in some ways how you can scale Euro games. It's that's like a track. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see what you did there. Um, but what you can expect from that is that games like Ostia and and the, the sort of Feldian designs, they'll be a lot more tactical because what you're trying to work out is just, just how to do something, mm. right? And then games like... Uh, you know, a feast for Odin, they're a lot more strategic because it's not about what you do now, it's the big pi picture that you build up. And I am a fan of the latter, mm -hmm. strongly a fan of the latter. But I was surprised by how much I enjoyed Ostia. Mm. Did you gel with it in the same way? Yes, I think that maybe I'm more a fan of the former. So that helps me mm -hmm. in this because I am a fan of doing things piecemeal mm -hmm. <laughs> and working out the bigger picture later on, but it's probably actually too late. Yeah. What I liked about this game was we only we did only play it once, so mm -hmm. this is a little bit first impressions, but um, I lost by one point, and we had very different 
routes to getting points. Yes. And what I liked is that even though we had different routes, the outcome wasn't massively different. Because what annoys me in point salady type games is, and I, I know I've said this before, but I will say it again, is when halfway through the game, there becomes a very clear strategy to the best points. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the things that you've been doing are just pointless busy work. Mm. Literally pointless busy work. And you will never manage to get anywhere close to to what other people are scoring. See, that's why I don't like this genre at all, because to me then, uh, the issue becomes, well, if if all the paths are sort of, uh, you know, then... But they were uh, there. I enjoyed the paths that we took. And you I enjoyed, enjoyed the brain work, right? Yes. Yeah. I enjoyed the, the individual little bits of puzzle mm. that did actually come together at the end. Having said that, there's one thing about Ostia that felt a little... I want to say oftia, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there is an action that is the most convoluted action to understand in in a in a you know in a group of actions that felt pretty straightforward. I was reading the rule book. To agree on the rules for yeah, no one can seem to agree on the rules for. And after the designer has clarified the rules on BGG, everyone went that doesn't sound right. (laughs) That sounds too good and not very interesting. Mm. So we're left with this situation because what effect you have like this this spot that doesn't produce resources unlike the other five spots, but lets you take two actions, one of them being of your choice and another one like sort of where your ships land again. It's it's written in a convoluted way, but everyone agrees that it is perhaps a bit too generous and perhaps not very interesting because in a game where you're trying to break your brain mm. just to do something, it is not very interesting to have one of the six actions to be, you can do anything you want, it doesn't mm. matter, right? Um, so it feels antithetical to the conundrums that the design poses. And I think that to me is is sort of where it goes off the rails a little bit. But the designer seemed to say that it balanced itself out. I respectfully... Okay, I can't comment on that as a reviewer because I think it would be gauche. But but every sense inside my body is is screaming right now, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. It's not interesting, right? Balance or not balance, it doesn't matter. It It, it argues against the design, that, that particular element. It, it makes an argument that the rest of it isn't relevant and you're breaking your brain for no reason. Also, I'm not sure I agree about the balance. Um, and I'm not the only one. So that there, I said what I shouldn't have said, but I Can said I it. Can I make a very minor complaint about this game? Yes. So we got the upgraded pack. Yes, from Kickstarter, yes. From Kickstarter, which included some wooden pieces instead of cardboard pieces great mm-hmm. super one thing it didn't do was make a dual layer board for the mun yes it did Mun-Cal- no it didn't so so it doesn't divide it doesn't have dividers for where the boats go right and that i would have liked to have seen because there were several times in the game where we accidentally bumped the table or we sneezed or, I don't know, whatever, blinked. And the boats just and the boats sailed just away. sailed away around the Mancala and we had oh. no idea how many 
resources we should be getting from anywhere. So that's a tiny complaint, but otherwise I really enjoyed this game. My complaint was that, that there's just a touch of a sloppy production where um, there is uh, an error in what we initially thought iconography, because the oh, iconography yes. for one icon said get two rewards, uh, sorry, one reward, whereas the rulebook says this this thing that you get means you get two rewards and a reward is a is a thing in the game where like it scales up your victory points that you get for different things it's a nice mechanism but the problem was as i thought because the rulebook says you get two rewards the iconography is only showing one you are clearly you know you're clearly meant to get two so that's an error why aren't there two that's how we played it because that is an error not in the iconography but in the rule book and actually you're meant to only get one reward the iconography was right all along but like how am i it's only if i go to bgg that i will parse that right Mm. and there's 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 a few more minor elements like that where it's just like there's a component list that doesn't list all the components Mm. i thought what are these extra components turns out they're for the solo mode but I had to go to BGG to find that out. Yeah, it doesn't make that clear. Because I, I guess if I were to read the solo rules, but I can play this with you, I I have other solo games to play. I don't need to play this solo, mm. right? I, I was like, what is this? I don't know. Where does it go? Not clear. It is a game that I would like to play solo uh, because I think that if you are not, with any point salad game, if you're not evenly matched, rough, mm. roughly evenly matched mm. with your the people that you play with then someone is going to take it away because they are going to work out this puzzle easier than you do like if you play castles of burgundy with the castles of burgundy shark right yeah yeah like that yeah there's a few friends that i don't want to play castles of burgundy with because i'm scared yeah yeah i'm genuinely just scared yeah and this game i think would be the same Mm, fair enough fair enough that's it for the very first talk cardboard podcast wow we've we've finished we have finished but there will be another podcast hurrah and we will be talking about nightfall resist and lands of galzir sorry i said resist wrong please say resist correctly resist yeah because it has an exclamation point at the end so it has to be said like that so if you would like to comment on anything that we've spoken about today or anything that we are going to be talking about on the next podcast, please email me at elaine at nopunincluded.com or on our Discord. My guess is that we're going to have a lot of people writing in about Resist because I don't want to spoil it, but my, what a game. Isn't it good? What a game. It's good. You'll find out more in the next episode. And it plays solo. It does. You don't even need anybody. You can just Just, just just break it out. Why not? On the bus. I know, right? Anywhere. I'd be weird. That Why would you weird. play a board game on the bus? Know. Before we close out, uh, would you like to tell people what they can look forward to on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash included? We've got a game about dragons. Fire-breathing dragons. Think Smaug, but crossed with My Little Pony, and you'll be somewhere in the region. And just before that, you will hear some words about our game of the year for 2020, which... No. 2022 2022 no you yeah. can't get the year right oh no oh no i i was like i was like so smooth it was just like oh yeah and we'll talk about in an uh, npi bubble here we've no idea what uh, year it is 
I mean, whatever. A game of the year for 2022. There's two of them. And you'll hear about those in an upcoming video or a video that has already come out, depending on when this podcast finally launches. Thank you for sticking with us. I am Efka. I was Elaine. And this is Bessie. <laughs> Bessie is the dog. You had you heard her mouth sounds. I hope you enjoyed them. See you next episode.